Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to today's discussion. I'm Matt Rajansky, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Uh, very, very fortunate today to be able to bring you a conversation with Leonid Volkov. Uh, as I'm sure this audience is aware, uh, Alexei Navalny, uh, with whom Leonid has worked closely, was arrested in January uh, after returning to Russia following an attempt on his life, and he has been imprisoned ever since. In that time, the repressions against his anti-corruption foundation uh, and anybody uh, who supports it has been labeled uh, an extremist, barred from uh, participating in Russian elections and much, much more. Uh, since these repressions, the question uh, arises in Russia and also outside of Russia, uh, what does the space for opposition look like today? Uh, what does its future look like? Uh, what is the strategy going into the Russian Duma elections? Let me note that in the coming weeks, uh, we'll be convening uh, other voices uh, on these and related topics. Among them will be Dubov Sobol, uh, who's a lawyer for the Anti-Corruption Foundation, uh, as well as Galina Timchenko, who's a journalist and CEO of the independent online newspaper Medusa, which, of course, last month was added to the Russian government's list of foreign agent media outlets. And so now when you go to their website, you see the obligatory announcement that it is foreign agent material. Uh, before I introduce Leonid, uh, let me just uh, a couple of reminders and ground rules. Um, if you want to stay up to date with everything we're doing, you can find that on the Kennan Institute website, uh, including our podcast, Kennan X and the Russia File, and our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. During the course of the conversation, including right now, if you want to start already, you can submit your questions via email to Kennan at WilsonCenter.org. That's K E N N A N at WilsonCenter.org. You can tweet them at Kennan Institute, or you can post them uh, on our Facebook page. And please do include your name and affiliation so I know who's asking the question when I pass it along to Leonid. Um, so Leonid Volkov, uh, of course, is the leader of the network of regional headquarters for Alexei Navalny uh, and is the founder of the Internet Protection Society, an NGO focused on internet freedom and digital rights in Russia. He was a campaign manager and chief of staff for Navalny's 2013 mayoral campaign for Moscow, as well as his effort uh, to register in the 2018 presidential election. He was the head of the electoral campaign uh, headquarters uh, in the 2018 election and later managed the all-Russian protest movement voters' strike. He himself served as a deputy in the Katerinburg City Duma and as head of the Central Electoral Committee of the Russian Opposition Coordinating Council. Leonid himself has over 20 years of experience as an IT professional running and consulting for several of Russia's largest software firms. And together with Fyodor Krasheninikov, he published three editions of The Cloud Democracy, a book, a book which brings together his two areas of expertise on how modern technology can reshape and redefine democracy and elections. And I, I very much hope, Leonid, that you'll address that topic as well. Without further delay, the floor is yours, Leonid. Uh, when you're done speaking, we'll get into a conversation. And, and please uh, submit your questions from the audience, and I'll bring those in as well. The floor is yours, Leonid. Thank you very much, Matthew. And well, I'm pleased to be once again talking at the Wilson Center at the Kennan Institute. I very much hope that the last, this is the last time I'm doing the, it online. So I very much hope that the life will soon get to some form of normal and we'll be able to meet in person. And I, I am one of these old school guys who believes that nothing could really replace a live, live conversation. Still, many important events are unfolding right now and we have to address them. And uh, uh, let me just first shortly recap like what is happening right now and to put it in the context of the of, of Russian political events. So it might sound very dramatic, and it is quite dramatic that um, a month ago, the office of Moscow prosecutors uh, filed to the court uh, that a, a petition to, to recognize uh, both Navalny's anti-corruption foundation and his network of regional offices as extremist organizations, which would, well, prevent them from participating in any form of uh, public and political life in Russia, because everyone who's engaged uh, in, in any activity of extremist organization would face up to six years imprisonment. Everyone who is a donor for an extremist organization would be punished by up to eight years of 
imprisonment and everyone who is an active member or leader of such an organization would face up to 10 years. So this made uh, it very clear for, for us that our offline infrastructure cannot persist in, in the way well we are used to, but we have to, to redefine the group, reorganize a lot, and we launched a large and deep reorganization process, which is now lasting for a month. We have formally dissolved our regional offices, but asked them to continue operating as independent regional political organizations. And many agreed, and many are already launched their own political projects in Russian region. So we hope that the legacy of the regional networks that we've built uh, during the last four years in which me, myself, and our friends and colleagues, and Alexei himself, have invested so lot that the, this legacy will not disappear uh, politically. Uh, for the Anti-Corruption Foundation, it's also clear that, okay, uh, many things that Anti-Corruption Foundation <clears throat> has been doing are not anymore possible, but much more things are possible, uh, especially all our anti-corruption investigation as far as we are able to publish content online and distribute content online, we are good to go. Uh, we consider the situation so, okay, I mean, they take away parts of our offline infrastructure. So we have to build up organizational in the online to that extent that it at least compensates for our losses uh, in the offline. It's, it's quite challenging, but also like, the, the, the COVID year uh, has uh, gave us a lot of lessons on how to organize online. We are actually used to uh, flexibility and well, the ability to reorganize and rearrange our activities, uh, responding to, to the challenges that Kremlin uh, said was always our uh, strong uh, ability and and we hope this will also help us uh, in the future of course 95 percent of our efforts are now can, being concentrated around the upcoming duma elections they are scheduled to take place in just four months from now and i hope we all hope that they will become a real challenge for President Putin and United Russia, his political party. Uh, according to independent polling, uh, the approval rating for United Russia is below 30% now, uh, 27 to 28, uh, 29, which, uh, which barely corresponds to uh, the place that the party now occupies in Russian political life. The party occupies almost 80% of the seats uh, in the State Duma and pretty much the same in every regional parliament. Quite unfair for a party with only 27% of popular support or quite a gap to be filled for Kremlin, uh, Kremlin's political masterminds. It's actually quite a challenge for them. And while we are sometimes being a little bit depressed with all the problems that we have to overcome, all the challenges and all the obstacles when they freeze our bank accounts, when they uh, detain our friends and colleagues, uh, when they impose enormous fines on the protesters and so on. This is quite depressing because we are doing nothing bad. We are only exercising the very regular political activity, trying to participate in an election and so on. But if we consider the problems that those guys there in Kremlin are facing, well, their problems are even larger. So they have uh, a fading popularity of their party and of President Putin himself. His approval ratings are still, his approval ratings are still very high for a democratic leader, for an elected president. He is now, uh, getting somewhere around 50% in the polls, which I don't know, like President Macron of France or Chancellor Merkel of Germany would love if their approval ratings would be uh, that high. 
but for Putin, it is a new and a very uncomfortable uh, situation. It's the best job in the world to be a dictator with 80% of approval rating. You could pose half naked on the horse, you could uh, entertain yourself with any uh, activity because people would like it, people would love it, and everyone will just uh, do whatever you're saying. Now, to, to be such a dictator in the situation when kind of the, the half of the country's population hates you is not anymore that funny and comfortable, and it's not something uh, Putin is used to. So it makes him more conspicuous. It makes him uh, like feeling uncomfortable. It makes him uh, thinking a lot about the challenge of the transitional year of 2024. He has seen how dramatic and problematic was this transition for his elder political brother, for uh, Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus in August 2020. It was, it was a transition from himself of, uh, to himself by a dictator and still it nearly uh, uh, cost Lukashenko his, his throne. Uh, Putin envisions, I believe, that something very similar could happen in 2024. So he feels angry, he feels nervous, and he wants to be as uh, he wants to be prepared as good as possible. And it means to have a sterile, a clean, a completely mm, controllable state Duma, which will be elected in just four months. So we see that everything that is happening now in Russian domestic policy is uh, defined by Putin's desire to have like a Duma which would be completely clean, like 100% of um, Duma uh, representatives being like under his uh, control, under control of his presidential administration, like 80% of them belonging uh, to the United Russia. And this expectation and this tasks that he apparently sets to his uh, administration just doesn't uh, doesn't correspond to the reality. Of course, elections in Russia are not fair. Of course, we have a long and set uh, history of um, ballot stuffing and all forms of election rigging. Still, they can't do everything. Uh, still, there are many regions of Russia uh, where votes are being counted, like normally, where opposition has a lot of independent observers who could be sent to polling stations. And their ability to steal an election is enormous and still limited. And it's not enough to fill the gap they want to fill, they have to fill. So it makes them very nervous, makes them very stressed. And people under stress well, tend to behave somewhat hysterical, tend to make a mistake. And this is our explanation for what is happening just right now. Yes, this new ridiculous law that would uh, prohibit anyone to participate in an election, whoever <clears throat> had something to do, whoever to some extent interacted with an extremist organization. Uh, a law that they want to be also applied, um, I don't know how to say it properly in English, like the laws that uh, they would apply uh, like back in time. Uh, so for instance, if the organization is recognized as an extremist organization, um, and I was doing something with this organization like three years ago, long before it was recognized as an extremist organization, I still would be uh, banned from participation in an election. A enormous, a ridiculous uh, uh, experiment <laughs> with, the, with the Russian constitution. But, well, if they consider their situation of a paranoid hysteria, it's, it's explainable. They don't want let anyone on the ballot who is, well, who could become an opposition leader, who could 
be too independent in the uh, in the future years. So in Belarus in 2020, there was no independent member of the parliament. So no one could say in the very dramatic days of August 2020 in Minsk that, well, I am having my own legitimacy. I'm a member of the parliament. I'm not dependent on Lukashenko. I'm ready to become a new leader of the protest. There was no one like this, and Putin wants that no one like this is there also in Moscow uh, in 2024. It's, it's very essential for him. But, uh, well, or what they are doing to Alexei Navalny right now, of course. Uh, this is also another example. Uh, on Monday, uh, so they, they have started to interrogate, uh, they have started to interrogate very many members of uh, our uh, foundation, ex-employees, uh, ex dozens of people who like used to participate in our activities. Uh, why? Uh, because they kind of reinitiated a criminal case against Alexei Navalny, a very ridiculous case, um, an embezzlement case, where allegations are that he kind of uh, made profit of the donations that people have sent to the Anti-Corruption Foundation. We are very proud of the fact that our organization uh, always was running on crowdfunding inside the country. Uh, always running on micro donations from hundreds of thousands of donors. So now, on one hand, they are disqualifying all those donors from further participation in Russia's political life, uh, because anyone who donated to an extremist organization will be not allowed to participate in any election in in, in a foreseeable future. On the other hand, they are accusing uh, Navalny personnel, also me, uh, of, of, of stealing this donation, which is ridiculous, especially for the fact that neither Alexei nor me uh, even have ever drawn a salary from the Anti-Corruption Foundation. So there is, uh, there is no single bank transaction in this direction. Contrary to that, we, we both also were like small donors and also um, have some small amounts of money to support. Uh, as a foundation in the past years. So it looks like very soon they will start a new process. They will, well, accuse him of embezzlement, which will result in, well, up to 10 years uh, in prison for him. On one hand, it's not news. We always knew, we, we always realized that uh, the, the, it's just a formality, like for how many years in prison his sentence. He, Putin doesn't want to let uh, Alexei Navalny uh, free, Putin will not allow him to, to, to stay in Russia, politically active, alive, uh, not imprisoned um, while Putin is there, alive uh, and still in Kremlin. Uh, so on one hand, which way exactly they would pursue to add him like five, 10, 15, 20 years of imprisonment, it was not so interesting. On the other hand, the timing is still quite uh, strange because, well, we all expected they will do something after the dust settles a little bit, after the Duma election, they, they have time. So because now Alexei is serving like two and a half years, so they have time to, to, to think of something new. But they act so that it looks that they are in enormous rush. Why so? Why are they making people more angry uh, before the elections? Not clear. The only explanation is that, like, really Putin is urging them to do something, to, to, to eradicate the threat to do something to make it absolutely impossible for us, for our political movement, to influence the outcome of the upcoming election. We believe that Putin will not succeed. We believe that, that, uh, that the upcoming election is a great and enormous opportunity. We have our smart voting, our tactical voting strategy, which 
for which it is indeed essential that no our candidate is admitted to the ballot and still we are able to uh, meddle uh, <coughs> into the game, still we are able to influence the outcome of the election. How? In every district we designate a candidate who has, in our opinion, uh, the best chances to unseat the incumbent uh, United Russia member of the Duma and we ask all our supporters and everyone who doesn't like Putin and United Russia. So we ask everyone to support this candidate. So we endorse one candidate in every district, not uh, taking care about their formal political affiliation, about their views, about what she thinks about Stalin or what she thinks about like whatever. It's not important. The only thing that if we elect enough people who are not uh, members of United Russia, who are not candidates support uh, by the administration, it allows us to create a lot of mess, a lot of trouble, and uh, it allows us to make the EU Duma less um, controllable by, by Putin and his administration. And based on the numbers that we have, uh, based on the uh, number of people registered with the smart voting now, we believe that we have like developed really a very strong tool uh, to elect many independents to the parliament. Uh, Alexei Navalny uh, announced that, that smart voting will be our political strategy in 2018. We have applied it twice in 2019 and 2020 for regional elections. Uh, both times we were able to win 15 to 20% of the seats. So if we are able to elect 15 or 20% of independents to the state Duma, it will be definitely, uh, well, very different political life in Russia, in our country. So despite all this paranoid history by Kremlin, despite all the challenges, we are working hard. We have four months to go. We have to, to mobilize as many participants as possible for the smart voting. We have to mobilize as many independent election observers as possible to, to defend the result of the smart voting. And we are uh, considering um, well, we are expecting that the outcome of the election could be quite favorable uh, for us and it will change a lot uh, in Russia. But of course, it's all just preparation to 2024, where the most major and important fight will happen. Uh, this is, well, the introduction about what's going on in Russia. I didn't cover at all like, what do we expect from the outer world? What do we think the world is doing right and wrong in uh, dealing with Putin? I didn't cover also a very important issue of internet platforms and how, ironically, they are crucial for Russian uh, democracy. But, well, let's jump as soon as possible to the most interesting part of the conversation, to the Q&A, and I hope I will have a chance to cover these issues as well. Thank you. Well, thank you, Leonid. You, you, in fact, covered quite a lot. Um, I have plenty of questions, including, not surprisingly, about everything mentioned that you didn't talk about yet. We have audience questions. Um, anyone uh, is welcome to submit more of them, Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, Twitter or Facebook. But let me start with uh, what I actually see as kind of the most urgent question now. You were telling me a few words about it before we went live. Talk to me about Alexei's condition in, in prison right now about his mental state to the extent that you're familiar with it. And let me ask this because it'll give you a chance also to bring in the international dimension. Is there any chance that he can get out with sufficient domestic pressure or international pressure? Um, I mean, how would that work? Yes, I mean, we believe there is a chance. Otherwise, we will not be doing what we are doing. I mean, Putin is quite stubborn, but still quite rational. Putin always tries to compare the 
<coughs> upsides and downsides of every decision. So the strategy for us is to change the situation that way that the, well, downsides of having Navalny back in prison will cost Putin more than the downsides of having him released. This is possible. We actually have done it once in August 2020, when we developed a lot of pressure, uh, which uh, persuaded Putin to let him go, to let him be evacuated to Berlin after the poisoning. Okay, Putin relied on the judgment of his medical advisors, who apparently have told him that uh, well, Novichok will not be traceable uh, in the body after 48 hours, that they have waited enough uh, before giving green light to transportation. So, well, they probably uh, put in fire the chief forensic expert of the Russian Federation a week after Navalny has been transported to Germany and uh, they have um, confirmed Novichok there and so on. So there are many circumstances around. But, but still, we know it is possible. So uh, it is possible to uh, put enough pressure on Putin that he changes his mind. If we don't do, we know what happens. And Navalny will stay there forever until one of the two men dies. Uh, he will be either uh, tortured and imprisoned to death uh, because they really tried to put him in torture conditions and to, to, to make him suffer and trotzer. And I'm very sure that it was literally Putin's order like to make him suffer, to make him regret every single moment uh, that he returns, that he dared to survive the poisoning, that he dared to publish this video about Putin's palace and so on. Uh, or, of course, until Putin dies, because as we have um, discussed it many times. Also, I believe um, in the Canon Institute that it's absolutely clear also for everyone inside Russia that Putinism will not over-survive Putin because it's too authoritarian, too personal, built on too many uh, personal ties. And if Putin has to go for whatever reason, uh, Putinism will, well, will go through an enormous crisis and most probably will, will perish. So, yes, so now this is Putin's decision not to let him out. Now this is Putin's intention. But it was also Putin's intention to kill him and he failed. It was also Putin's intention to do this and that. We don't have to take his intentions for granted. And we have to consider that it's possible to uh, influence uh, them to, to, to affect them. The most important finding of Navalny's investigation about Putin's palace is the fact that this man, Vladimir Putin, cares the most about money. That's, that, that is the most valuable insight of this investigation. The guy had 20 years of unlimited power in the richest country in the world. The guy had three trillion dollars only in oil and gas proceeds. He could do whatever he wanted. He could make his legacy fly to Mars, the best educational system in the world, the best roads in the world, whatever. He has chosen intentionally that his legacy would be an enormous, huge, Italian-style villa covered with gold and red carpets. It says a lot. And this is, I believe, something that Putin can't really forgive Navalny. That it was really like inside, into his, into, to, to inside his head. So, and this makes us so sure, and Alexei is very sure, it's kind of something that he asked me and Vladimir Ashurkov and all our colleagues to do like a few days before he was flying back to Moscow to push hard for personal sanctions against those who pretend to be businessmen, pretend to be just oligarchs, but are actually holders of Putin assets, like real leverage against Putin, a strong position for negotiation. 
could be one's room money because money is something that's really important for Putin. Money is something he really cares about. This has a very practical aspect. Uh, going after this money, freezing these assets stolen by Putin and his friends from Russian taxpayers could create an enormous leverage and could affect Putin's behavior and could prevent further victims of his repressions in Russia. But it has also practical aspect for the West because this enormous export of corruption rots and endangers Western, Western political system. This money buys politicians, buys influence, buys newspapers, judges all over Europe, UK, sometimes also in the US. We don't actually imagine the extent of operations that uh, Putin is uh, doing with, with, with the money that he squeezes of Russia and he exports of Russia. It's, it's one of the things that we are going to do to investigate, to prove, to showcase how, to which extent are actually, uh, to which extent uh, like political systems of many Western countries are already contaminated with Putin's dirty money and how dangerous this actually could be. Let me um, follow that up with another topic that you and I actually discussed before we went live. And that's the, the tension between uh, offline and online in different ways. You talked about more pressure on offline organization means that online platforms become more important. But at the same time, it seems like in the online space, it's very clear that there are huge risks of disinformation, fakes, uh, hacking, all kinds of manipulations, which the Russian state is very capable. They have a lot of tools in this respect. So talk about the balance between those two things and how do you move forward when there's pressure and risks on both of those fronts? Well, you know, we have a privilege, uh, so to say, of being much more immune to this because we are used to live in this toxic environment. We are, so the, the Russian position exists within a very toxic environment since, since at least 2011 or even 2007, when Kremlin started to uh, spy after opposition figures, to intercept calls and communications to, I mean, Kremlin has done one million Watergates. <coughs> Uh, during the course of the last 15 years. And it also, it, it led to, to, to some uh, immunity, to, to, see, to better understanding. I would say that like an average employee of our political organization is much more technologically savvy in terms of like protecting their personal data and not opening phishing links and um, not doing this, 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 and, and that on the internet, and double checking the information, and not uh, falling victim to, to 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 fake news or to some disinformation complaints. So, an, a very average employee of our organization is much more immune to this as uh, than the like average European politician. So, for instance, this last series of attacks when they were impersonating me. Uh, like these Kremlin-backed so-called pranksters, but just Kremlin agent agents were impersonating me in order to uh, intimidate uh, European Western politicians. Uh, they were successful with the Canadian Parliament, with the Dutch Parliament, uh, Lithuanian, Estonian, Latvian, Ukrainian, with, with many NGOs in Europe, in the US. Like we know about like 15 successful attempts and attacks uh, of that kind. But they also tried it in Russia and with, with zero success because like no one um, believed uh, their story and so on. Because, because, because uh, living within such a, an environment like really makes you used to, a human being is, is really able to get used to pretty much anything. Let me um, take two of our audience questions and, and read them together because I think there's there's a relationship there. 
Uh, Andreas Adrianopoulos uh, asks whether uh, Navalny uh, himself, the person, is is the focus of the opposition, or whether the uh, opposition movement, you know, has a clear kind of uh, policy, strategy, vision for Russia's future. Uh, and and then Daniel Samotis from Canberra asks. Um, uh, does Mr. Navalny really represent the Russian nation or more the intelligentsia uh, disconnected from society, uh, fighting its own war against a tyrannical regime? And he mentions here the Narodne Volya revolutionaries in the end of the 19th century, others like the old believers. Uh, and again, he asks the question, what is Navalny's program, economic and social, uh, to attract the interest of ordinary citizens? So again, I think they're related questions, but handle them however you like. Yeah, uh, thank you for these questions. Well, Navalny's program, like political and economical, is published on his website. So he was running a presidential campaign in 2018, which made him to, to develop and to publish a very thorough program with many, many details and many different aspects from like uh, taxation reform to court reform. Um, I don't believe uh, I have time to cover it here, so it could really easily be read. Uh, Navalny is the leader of the opposition, uh, and now not only a leader, but also a symbol, of course. Russia has 400 political prisoners, twice as much as the Soviet Union had after Stalin. So uh, twice as much as... Uh, were in the times of like when 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 Andrei Sakharov was in exile in Nizhny Novgorod in the, in the darkest times of the late years of the Soviet Union. We commemorate today the hundredth anniversary of uh, Andrei Sakharov. Who was he? Was he a member of intelligentsia? Yes, definitely. So I mean, uh, Andrei Sakharov was uh, clearly like a scientist. Uh, a, a very uh, well, uh, an, an academic from 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 Moscow intelligence. Was he representative for the opposition? Yes, of course, he was. And thousands of ordinary people called uh, considered Andrei Sakharov to be the um, symbol to to be the implementation of their of their hopes and many ordinary peoples really made pilgrimages to him to his exile in 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 Gorky in in, in Novgorod, just just to talk to him to to ask him to to protect to protect them while he was in exile himself there is no contradiction and it's also no contradiction for for Navalny in January this year we have seen rallies in his support in hundred cities, large cities, small cities, very small cities, poor and rich, very different all over the country. And the participants of these rallies were very different people. So it was really a popular movement, and Navalny is a leader of a popular movement, which represents like all layers of the uh, society. That's that's very clear for us. And now I think that the, the, the gravest mistake that, that Putin did, uh, while Alexei Navalny is in prison, and while he <clears throat> uh, there, he is becoming more and more of a symbol for hope, because kind of Putin pointed to him and uh, uh, and announced it publicly aloud. This guy is my main rival. So everyone who is unhappy with Putin, for whatever reason, they were very different. And there are very many, very different people unhappy with Putin. And they were very fragmented and they didn't know where to go. Now, Putin has shown them the way, uh, explained to them that if you are unhappy with me, go with this guy. He is my enemy number one. So Navalny is just one of 400 Russian political prisoners, but he symbolizes all of them. Uh, because of what he achieved with uh, surviving the poisoning, with uh, his political career, with uh, his investigations, uh, and so on. I think he deserves this place. So now we see such a transitional 
moment in Russia, such a change uh, that, yes, the, the whole opposition movement is more and more crystallizing and building up around Navalny. So five years ago, we could speculate that, well, it is one of the opposition figures, but there are many others. Now, well, this would be not serious. It's, it's really, you make a very good point about Putin's choice. Uh, it's incredible that he, that he did this uh, on the 100th anniversary, essentially, of, of Sakharov, uh, breaking from his tradition of many years to not talk about Navalny at all, to sort of dismiss him. And, and now he has basically put him uh, in this place of, as you say, of leadership, de facto leadership of the opposition. Yeah, please. And it's also proven by polling for the first time, actually, uh, in the recent years. So, so Navalny is barred from any election since 2013. He was not allowed to participate in presidential election 2018. But now in electoral polls, he is clearly in the second place for the first time. It, it never happened before. It started to happen only now that for Russian citizens, he is kind of the presidential candidate number two. Well, still far behind Putin, but this is a guy who is imprisoned and who is actually not allowed to run in an election. Still, he's the second popular, well, politician in the country in terms of electoral politics. <laughs> Today, uh, there is a very nice and very fresh joke from the Russian internet uh, because uh, today they had a second hearing of this uh, ridiculous law which would and not allow anyone to participate in any election uh, for being kind of, uh, for dealing with an extremist organization. And for the second hearing, they proposed that even those who are supporting an extremist organization online, like tweeting about an extremist organization should also be disqualified from participating in an election. And the joke is that now, finally, we got an explanation why Vladimir Putin never called Alexei Navalny by name. He just want, doesn't want to be disqualified from an election. Okay, so uh, speaking about uh, elections, let's talk just a little bit um, uh, about the upcoming Duma election. Uh, just two questions for me on that. I mean, the first is, um, I know you yourself served in a city Duma. You talked about, you know, a, a sort of very different political life if a certain percentage of independent Duma deputies could be elected, even not a majority, just say 10 or 15 percent. Um, you know, what's the point? What would that really achieve? And the second question, say a little bit more, if you can, about the standards for selecting smart voting targets or smart voting candidates uh, other than just are they not part of the regime? Well, um, the first and the most important thing is, is that they are not part of the regime, that they could remain independent when elected. Uh, because, well, sometimes it's very easy to, to indicate who is a part of the regime uh, in every district because, well, this is someone who is, even if, even if they don't formally belong to United Russia, when they are supported by the local administration, if they're like, you know, election billboards appear in the city, which could only be done uh, by uh, approval of the local administration. Well, it's very clear they are the administrative candidates, so they could not be supported. But um, uh, we have to select someone else then, and usually we, we rely on, the, on our network of supporters. We ask them, whom do you know? Uh, who is more visible? Who is doing more? To, 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 to compete, to, to combat the uh, incumbent um, a member of the parliament. Yeah, normally, United Russia just tries to, to re-elect incumbents. <clears throat> and uh, who is visible? Who is actually campaigning? We also include some historical data in the mix. We consider the results of the past elections to, to see who could be the best performer against the United Russia candidate. We also include polling and like sociological research, uh, polling data uh, in the mix. And it helps us, so we have kind of mathematical model, which helps us to, to define 
who could be the best competitor for the United Russia candidate and be relatively independent. Now, what happens when the independents are elected? Normally, they are independents, but they still belong to one of the three formal, formally existing opposition parties. So in Russia, we have like a also very ridiculous system and there is a united Russia and there are three parties which, re which represent the opposition, but uh, ironically, they kind of uh, comply with united Russia on, on pretty much everything. So this is a so-called systemic or systematic opposition. Uh, the three parties that are also completely under control of the presidential administration. The parties as administrative structure, but not every member of them, of course. And we've seen in many, on many occasions that when members of those formerly opposition parties are being elected, and they become a majority, that so they are able to recall that, wait, actually we are independent, we are not members of United Russia, why do we have to comply on everything? United Russia uh, has enormous leverage when it's a majority. Well, the minority can do a lot and <clears throat> uh, it's the survival strategy for them to agree upon everything with United Russia. But if they become a majority, things start to change. This happened in Khabarovsk when LDPR became a majority. This happened last year in Tomsk when due to smart voting, only eight of 27 members of the city council were elected from the, from the United Russia. And suddenly uh, the, the, the members of the uh, Communist Party and other parties in all that always were ready to to vote for uh, any to, to to support anything that the United Russia is saying. They kind of they felt this um, taste of freedom of political competition, and they started to act as if they were like true independence. And even if they don't succeed, <clears throat> so for instance, in the Moscow City Council, which is the most important regional parliament in Russia, in 2019, using smart voting, we managed to elect 20 members of not, 20, 20 members of the parliament not belonging to the United Russia out of 45. So we, we were three seats short of the majority. And of course, we know that if we would be able to get the majority, the, the situation will change dramatically. In our situation, of course, the Moscow government corrupted or somehow incorporated many of the independents that we were able to elect. Many, but not uh, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> because um, like eight or nine out of those 20 still are very independent. They participate in the rallies, they ask questions from the uh, mayor of Moscow, they represent their voters. Well, eight and nine of, out of 45 is not a lot, but it's still eight people more than in the previous uh, edition of the Moscow City Council. And it's important. People feel that they are represented and those independents in the parliament are acting as political leaders and they can act independently. And if there is a transition, if there is some struggle, if there is some turbulence, they could act as independents. They could become also points of uh, crystallization of protest activities and so on and so on. So it, it, it's very important to have someone who derives their legitimacy, not from Putin. Let me ask Leonid uh, a question from Joe Kaslis, uh, an independent political analyst. Uh, who asks, is there a flow of information and opinion uh, online coming from Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic states to Russia? Uh, does that information reach ordinary Russians? And does it have any positive effect for reform in Russia? And by the way, let me ask the exact flip side of that question from Daniel Sharp at Oxford, who asks, uh, how should RT be viewed? 
more generally Russian government's internet and podcasting? Well, RT is not journalism. It's propaganda, disinformation, and information warfare vehicle. So they try to present themselves to be journalists. They are not. They are just a um, warfare vehicle by, of the presidential administration, like plain and simple. And um, they don't follow any journalism standards. Uh, they, um, they, what, what, what they what they produce and run is, is disinformation, and they have to, to be treated accordingly. And now for the Russian language information from Ukraine, uh, Baltic states, uh, we don't see that it reaches ordinary Russians. I mean, well, of course, some Russians have like relatives or friends in, in Baltic states or in Ukraine. And of course it helps them to keep their um, perception of the world more like multipolar, that, that's definitely so. Um, but it's not a significant amount of, of Russians, unfortunately. Still, about 50% of Russian voters are victims of propaganda. About 50% still adhere to what television is saying, still follow the political news, first of all, on the internet. But this number uh, decreases and rather fast. So, approximately five points a year. So next year there will be 45 and then 40% and so on. So can I just quickly on that point, how big do you estimate the potential audience for uh, the, the Foundation uh, for the Struggle with Corruption videos or independent uh, political messages? I mean, clearly it's not 100 million people. Is it 50 million? Is it 10 million? Well, it's, it's a good question, but it's not so easy to address. So we have a core audience of um, five, six million people who kind of follow us like immediately. So whatever Alexei Navalny wants to say or whatever Anti-Corruption Foundation is releasing, it will reach this five, six million people in any way. So in the next few days, they would read it, listen to it, or watch it uh, in, in this or that form. These are people who kind of um, consume information offline or online and like follow um, well our political agenda also. This is a lot, but this is still like 5-6% of Russian voters of Russian adult population. Now, this is the core. And what we always try to do is first to increase the core and second to use this core as our media to reach out to wider layers of population. Sometimes we succeed. It was with the Putin palace investigation because of the subject, because of all the circumstances, but it enjoyed much larger, much broader reach because like members of the core were so ignited by it that they started to show it to translate it to their friends and relatives and so on, you have to see. And of course, like people, supporters as a media are the most effective, most, are the most efficient media. Because like even those people who follow the television and rely on the television propaganda, they are ready to talk if their friend, close friend or relatives is saying, look, I've seen something, you have to see it. And, and it's, it's important and so on. So it was always such a dual strategy for us to, to expand the core and we, we are doing good. So it, it has grown enormously. It was never near like five, six million people even two years ago. It's, it's grown fast. And to ask this core to, uh, to ask this core to serve as our media during electoral campaigns during information campaigns for the smart voting now and so on. This is sometimes we manage to achieve if uh, sometimes we manage to achieve it, sometimes not. It, it depends very much on the subject. So uh, in the interest of time, I'll make this the last question, Leonid. It's it's very important to me. I think it's important to a lot of our American listeners. Uh, President Biden is going to have a summit with Putin in uh, in the next month. 
we know, of course, they'll talk about nuclear issues, they'll talk about security issues. They're, of course, always going to do those things. Um, but we also know there's a history. I mean, we mentioned Sakharov, right? There's a history of American leaders talking to leaders in the Kremlin and getting political prisoners released. Uh, how, given that Navalny himself is in prison and there are 400 others in Russia, what would be your advice in terms of how to approach that negotiation with the most effect? Yeah, thank you. That's a very important question indeed. So, <clears throat> well, American leaders have been efficient in uh, releasing political prisoners, in getting political prisoners in the Soviet Union released, even when they were talking to Gorbachev, to Brezhnev, to Khrushchev, and so on. Putin is unfortunately tougher. Putin is more cruel. And um, unfortunately, what we have learned in the past years, he considers any uh, open approach, any attempt to bridge, to build bridges, any appeasement, he considers it only the sign of weakness. Unfortunately, that's not good, but it's just a fact that we have to face. He only understands when someone is talking to him from a very strong position, uh, having a strong leverage. This could force Putin into a negotiation. And if President Biden wants to achieve something, he has to take like very strong a, a, a power position in this upcoming uh, summit. Otherwise, Putin will once again think that no red lines actually exist, that he actually could do whatever he wants, and the West will still remain deeply concerned, bravely concerned, and so on, so on, so on. It is said, and I mean, uh, I, I believe it, it was actually kind of reported by a reputable journalist that Putin's uh, favorite TV series is House of Cards. That he can see, but I mean, he's not a well-educated person. He does, he does, I mean, he, he used to live in, in the German Democratic Republic in 1985, but he never used to live in, in the Western society. He doesn't know how things are actually working. He believes it to be like the true model. And House of Cards is about hypocrisy. So it's about like politicians saying aloud one thing that they have to say and doing very different things. Putin is a strong believer that those Western leaders have to say something about freedoms, uh, fair elections, independent courts, freedom of assembly, uh, liberal values, and so on, ah, because they have to say it is bullshit for, for their listeners, for their, for their voters. But they don't believe it, of course, that they are like him, that they care about money, about Russian oil and gas, and about all these things. And every time, every time Putin sees a soft approach to him, like let's try to talk, let's find where we could cooperate, he is being reaffirmed, reassured, and this is hopefully false belief. He, people try to, to find some point where they could negotiate with him, and Putin says, okay, this is yet another hypocrite that really would let me go with everything I do, would, would of course publicly condemn me of my crimes, but next time I do whatever I want, even if I apply chemical weapons, even if I like break any and impossible uh, international uh, treaties, they would just let me go. This, this is unfortunately like a very bad um, spiral that it's doing new and new loops and i very much hope that president biden will be able to not not to make another loop of this because if he does then the red lines are yet once again shifted well uh, i think you're not the only one who has that hope and i think most of all we all hope for the release of all of those prisoners uh but certainly alexei navalny as well um, Leonid, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you to the audience for your great questions. I apologize to those I didn't get to. 
Uh, and please stay tuned. Uh, next week, we'll have a conversation on Tuesday for the 100th anniversary of Sakharov. Uh, and I mentioned we'll uh, have Galina Timchenko and Dubov Sobol as well in the next couple of weeks. Lennon, thank you so much again. Uh, please take care. Be well. Thank you so much, Matthew, and thank you, everyone. Bye.